Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, and that includes those still in their mother's womb. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And this will mark the conclusion to our three-part series on abortion. We started off by talking about why science proves that the unborn are fully human. In the last episode, we talked about why there is no logical way that we can come to the conclusion that the unborn are somehow less worth protecting based on whatever stage of development they are in. Now, finally, in this episode, we're going to get a bit more biblical and focus on God and how he would see the unborn and how we should adopt his thinking rather than our culture's thinking or focusing on how we may feel about a particular thing. Now, as I said, the reason that I've waited three weeks to get into what God's Word has to say about it is that I wanted to start with some basic truth, because even if we weren't specifically talking about the Bible, God is a God of truth. God loves truth, and because we love Him, we want to love truth as well. We know that God has established the world to function according to certain laws, which is what we talked about in the first episode. We also know that he has given us the ability to think and that we need to be consistent in how we apply our beliefs and our understandings throughout our entire worldview, which is what we talked about last time. So now I just want us to, having laid that foundation of the universe and how we understand the universe all proves that the unborn are human, Now I want us to talk about why that fully lines up with what God has revealed in his word. Now, as is often the case, I'm not going to just sit here and throw out a bunch of Bible verses and try to say that this proves something, but instead I want us to look at how God reveals himself, how he reveals his heart for his creation, and what that is going to tell us about how he views the unborn, and again, how that lines up with that foundation that we've already set on why a God who has created a world in this way and has created logic and reason to function within that universe, why our God would want us or does want us to protect human beings regardless of how old they are, how developed they are, or where they are currently residing. Now, the first and probably most obvious thing to talk about is the Imago Dei, or the image of God. Because if we're going to talk about valuing human life, we really need to understand why we should care in the first place. Because we can sit here all day and say we need to protect humans because they're humans and therefore they need to be protected. But we need to have a foundation that says with absolute certainty and with no room for opinion or gray areas, why are human beings worth protecting? We don't just want to protect them because we think we should protect them or because that's what we've always been told. We need to come to a foundational understanding of what is it about humans that has an absolute and inherent value that regardless of what our society or culture or even our emotion says, we need to protect and value human life simply because it is human. And especially within this conversation, we need to say, what is it about human value that should supersede what we call a woman's right to choose or to govern what happens with her own body. Because it's not, it can't just be about, well, it's wrong to kill because we're willing to kill animals. So if, as we've talked about, a 
child in the womb is fully human, regardless of its level of development, why should we care about protecting it, regardless of how inconvenient or problematic or emotionally difficult that situation may be? Well, we get this belief and understanding all the way back in when God created the universe. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So we see here in this creation account that God made human beings unique to anything else he had ever made and would ever make because he stopped with us. So not only, as we see in this, did he give us dominion and responsibility over everything else in his creation. You know, it talks in that verse 26 about how we were to be given dominion over things and to rule over his earth. But he also created us in his image and in his likeness. Now, the implications of this have very far-reaching consequences, but just talking about the very bigger idea of human beings were made in God's image is very significant. Now, when we talk about being made in God's image, this isn't talking about us looking like him as though God has two legs and two arms, right? John 4.24 talks about how God is spirit. So we know that he doesn't have a physical human form, which wouldn't make sense because God created matter in the first place. So it wouldn't be sen make sense for him to be made of something if he's existed eternally that he then created. Anyway, instead, the idea of God making us in his image, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, this has one of two possible meanings, depending on who you talk to. Now, the very classic understanding is that God made us in his spiritual image. In other words, we're able to think, reason, we are able to rule over his creation with authority because he's given us many of his universal characteristics that we share with him. So his ability to, you know, be all-powerful, be all-knowing, to never change, those are aspects that we don't share with God. But there are aspects that we do. God loves. He seeks justice. We can seek after righteousness and holiness just as he is righteous and holy. God is good. And those are things that, while we will never experience them and understand them perfectly, we can share in those qualities that God has that nothing else in creation does have. And so people would say that we are made in God's image in that we are made to share in who he is in ways that finite beings can. Now, the other way that can be understood is that when we're made in his image, it's not that we are mere copies of him necessarily, or even that we are created spiritually like him, but instead we are his image bearers in the same way that a messenger is the bearer or the representative of a king or a ruler or something like that. In other words, when God made us in his image, that what that means is that we are meant to be his representative on earth. We are meant to to image him, to reflect him in his creation. Now, I'll be honest, that is something that, as of this recording, I still wrestle between the two understandings, but regardless of your own understanding or interpretation of what it means to be an image bearer of God, 
both of them are going to lead us to the exact same thing. And that is that God has made us unique. God has made us with a purpose and God has set us apart from the rest of his creation. So, you know, things like hunting animals for food, that is something that God is okay with because he sets us over his creation to rule it and to enjoy it or to use it as necessary. Now, we can do that to his glory or against his glory, but regardless, we have a unique position as human beings that simply by virtue of us being human, we are very unique and we are ultimately special to God. And so at the very foundation, at the very baseline of why humans are valuable, we are valuable and unique and special simply because God made us that way. God has has created an inherent value in humans that we need to be mindful of and that we need to care for and love because it's what God loves. Now, understanding that, maybe that's not enough. Maybe we would say, okay, yes, God made us unique, but that doesn't mean that we have to be as protected. It doesn't mean we need to treat humans special as not killing them simply because God made them that way. However, understanding the inherent uniqueness and specialness of humans humans allows us to better understand things that God has revealed throughout the rest of his word. And that is that there is a definite value to human life in a way that is more unique and important than anything else. So when a lot, when other people talk about why humans are special, they, they look at our functions. They look at the things like we are more socialized, we are more intelligent, we are more technical technologically advanced than something like monkeys or bison. Instead, as we talked about, it's because we are made in God's image that we are unique and above creation and therefore have greater inherent value. And so we can see God reveal in his word that he himself places a greater value on human life than he does on other things. Now, first, we can see this in places like Genesis 9, 6, which says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For, in the image of God, he created man. So, this is a logical statement. God gives a command, and then he explains why that command exists. So, he says that if you kill someone, if you kill a human, humans are called to kill you. They're called to end your life because you have ended someone's life. And then God explains why, right? That's what that for is. He says for or because, or this takes place because in the image of God, he made man. So what's God saying here? Because men or humans are created in the image of God, to kill a human being means that you forfeit your life. It means that human beings need to kill you. Now, not as a revenge thing, but because God places such value on human life that humans are to be the judge or the judgment on someone who would disrespect and devalue human life. And so we see he made the ultimate punishment for those who would harm and remove from existence his image bearers. And again, really notice, again, it's not as deterrence, right? It's not to scare people into not killing by saying, oh, I don't want to die, so I won't kill others. It's not to be cruel. It's not to maintain some kind of social order. Instead, God calls for his image bearers to execute judgment on those 
who would kill another image bearer. Out of cruelty, out of jealousy, rage, whatever it is. Now we see this also later on in the book of Exodus. Uh, this is Exodus 21, verses 28 to 32. And... Uh, I'll have those down in the show notes if you want to go back and reference this, but to summarize what's being said here, it basically says that if an animal kills a human, the animal is put to death. Likewise, if the animal's owner knew that that animal was a threat, uh, in this case it talks about how if an ox had tried to gore its owner before and the owner didn't do anything about it, then that owner will be put to death because his animal was responsible for killing another image bearer of God. And so here we see that God isn't just placing value on one human being not setting out to intentionally kill another human being, but instead God is also saying that because human life is so valuable, if someone's negligence, if their purposeful neglect in protecting others leads to someone's death, then that person will also be put to death. That is how highly God values human life, that in giving the law in Exodus, he would say that even contributing by your passivity, by your negligence, by your lack of care, if you contribute to the death of another person, you are put to death. Now, that is the God that we worship. That is the God that we love. And that is the God who created human beings, the God who so highly values them that even having your animal attack and kill someone was worth you being put to death. Now, make no mistake, I'm not advocating for us following Old Testament law. You've been here around long enough, you know that that's not what I advocate for. But what we can do is we can see the character of God, the nature of God, the heart of God, and how he has, in times past, established how death is to be thought of, how human beings are to be protected, and what safeguards or punishments he established for those who would break that law. That is the God who doesn't change how he has called us to interact, how he has called us to live in light of that has changed. Because what was true for the nation of Israel isn't necessarily true for us. But the God who valued human life, the God who wanted to protect human life, and the God who hated those who would end it maliciously, that God doesn't change. That is still the God that we love and worship today. And so we can see that any human being, God does not want us to just go out and outright slaughter doesn't want us just killing people for fun or convenience. And so with that, if the unborn are human, regardless of how we may feel about them, regardless on what it may mean if that human being is born and the suffering that they may supposedly cause to their parents, we can't just kill a human being and think it's nothing. It doesn't matter how developed they are. Human is human. And God as we've seen, wants us to protect those humans. He values human life. He loves human life. And he wants us, as his followers, to love what he loves, to protect what he wants protected. And then finally, we can recognize that God doesn't leave any room for categories of human or for degrees of humanity. In Galatians 3.23, Paul talks about how there's no degrees of value in people. It doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your social class is. God shows no partiality. We also see that in the book of James. In James chapter 2, it's talking about how this church was in sin because they were showing partiality. 
they were saying, hey, this person's rich, this person is successful, they're the ones who are the better Christians, they're the ones we're going to show favor to and to focus on. But you, those that we deem as less important, you can go sit on the floor. We see another idea of this in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where God is talking about how it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, everyone who does evil is going to be judged. And in verse 11, it says, God shows no partiality. Now, yes, this says nothing necessarily about the unborn. This is talking about human beings and how God doesn't see them differently and how it is wrong and evil, as we see in the book of James, to show partiality to someone based on whatever value we assign to them from a social level. But again, we can see God's heart here. We can see that God doesn't show partiality based on where someone's born, what class they are. It doesn't matter how we view a person. God views all people equally. All people are equally made in his image. They're all equally guilty of their sin, and they all equally need Jesus Christ. And so as his people, we want to ask ourselves, are we assigning different classes to people? Are we giving different values to human lives based on some criteria that we've cooked up? Now, back in the New Testament, they were doing it based on things like their ethnicity or their wealth level. But today, while we still do that, we also do it based on how developed they are where they are currently living. Are they living in their house? Or are they living in mom's stomach? We assign value and therefore we assign whether or not they are more or less worth protecting based on criteria, based on our own judgments, based on our partiality. And that does not honor God. Being partial, saying this human is more important than that human, this one can be killed and we can feel okay with it, we can justify it, but we, we need to protect this one is completely ridiculous. If we would say a mother cannot kill her three-month-old child because it reminds her of the father or because the father doesn't want anything to do with it, it's inconvenient, it's difficult, they're not ready, it interferes with the fun plans they had for her life. If we would not let a mother or father kill their three-month-old child or their one-year-old or their five-year-old, regardless of the justification they could come with, regardless of how that child impacts them. Why would we show partiality and favoritism and say, but if that child is younger, if that child is less developed, then it's okay for the parents to kill their child. Instead, we need to recognize, regardless of what we want to feel, regardless of what society says, regardless of how popular or unpopular it will make us, that the unborn are human. They are loved by God. I mean, look at what David wrote when he was divinely inspired by God in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14. He says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Now, obviously, David takes some poetic license here, talks about how God is forming his inward parts, he's knitting David together. But ultimately, what David's getting at here is that God is intimately involved and concerned with even the unborn, even those in the mother's womb. And God's not just interested in them. He loves them. David talks about how he, even as an unborn child, was fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, an unborn child glorifies God in its creation. And there are some children, they are born in sin. They are born to a difficult life, or they will create difficulties for their parents. 
And that is hard and it can be heartbreaking and it can seem like a life is going to be ruined if a child is allowed to continue living up until its birth time. But we answer to God, not our emotion. And if God loves that child, if God is concerned with that child, if God inspired David to say that the unborn are fearfully and wonderfully made, then we need to view them as wonderful and amazing because that is how our God sees them. So, final thoughts for this episode and this series in general. As Christians, we want our worldview to be influenced by the Bible before anything else and far above anything else. Culture, tradition, even our emotions need to come under subjection to what God reveals. And if we can clearly see that something is human, and if we know how God loves humans and wants his image bearers to be protected and have value placed on them, then we can't compromise God's clear desire for any reason that we can come up with. We live in a world that hates God, and we we know that, but this is a great example of what that plays out like. We live in a world that hates God, that wants to satisfy its own desires, and it will come up with any way imaginable to justify living against God. And so people who are still under the bondage of sin want to live their lives however they can and how they want. And for a lot of people, that means seeking their ultimate happiness. And for many people, happiness is found without children. And so we will find all kinds of reasons to justify it. We will find corner cases to say, oh, well, what about rape? What about this or that? But ultimately, what we're trying to do is justify a widespread extermination of human beings by abusing science and by thinking completely illogically and irrationally anything in order to justify it. Now, for God's enemies, that makes sense. Of course they're going to do that. Of course they're going to find ways to live apart from God and to feel good about it. But as his people, as people who aren't bound by sin, but who have been set free to see truth and to understand the world for what it is, we cannot get swept up in worldly, secular, God-hating thinking. God hates murder. Abortion, at the end of the day, is murder. Not because of a catchy slogan, not because of our political opinion, not because we emotionally don't like it. It's murder because scientifically we know that an unborn child from day one of conception is fully human based on the law of biogenesis. We logically know that we can't find ways to assign levels of humanity based on how it looks or how functional it is without that having far-reaching impacts on how we view other human beings in society. And biblically, we see how God has revealed what he thinks about murder, about destroying the image bearers of God that he has created, whether they are full adults, whether they are cute little toddlers, or whether they are a one-week-old child still in its mother's womb. Abortion is murder because murder is anything that sets out to kill another human being. And that's where we find ourselves. We are in an inescapable reality that an unborn child is equally human and therefore equally valuable as a five-month-old baby. And so what can we do except to value them equally and to protect them equally? And we live in a world of darkness where, where they don't care. Why should they care? But we as God's people need to be above that and beyond that. We need to bring light into that darkness. Yes, fighting for 
the unborn the same way we should fight for the born. But it's not just about getting through a political agenda. It's not just winning the battle against abortion. We need to fight against sin. Because if it's not abortion, it's, it's going to be something else. We cannot force people to love the things of God if they are living as his enemies. And so the abortion discussion is a critical one. It is so important. But it's not all there is for Christians. Because there's a much bigger issue at play here. And that is that people need the gospel. They need to have a mind that is set free from its bondage to sin so that it can fall under Christ. So that they can have a mind that is fully surrendered to him. And they can think biblically about abortion, about sin, about their purpose in life, about everything. And without that, we might win the battle against abortion. We might reverse it in America. We might reverse it around the world. But that victory can't be enough. It can't be all we want. Because at the end of the day, people are still going to hell as enemies of God. It doesn't matter how nicely they live their lives. It doesn't matter if they never abort a child and they never break a law. The reality is that they've broken God's law. And they are still guilty of that no matter how well they perform and function in society. So at the end of this series, it was a heavy one. It was a difficult one. I hope that I have shown from a biblical perspective why abortion is evil. But I also hope that I've impressed on anyone listening why Jesus Christ is so necessary when we're trying to shed light into a very difficult and painful topic for many people. And it's why we can't approach abortion with this belittling, angry, hostile attitude. It's why we can't sit there and stand outside abortion clinics and just yell at people and try to guilt them into not doing it. It's why we can't just call people murderers and just leave it at that and feel superior because we haven't gotten an abortion. We're not evil like them. It is only by understanding people's need for the gospel and their inability to think biblically and to have a godly perspective without Jesus Christ that we can approach this topic with gentleness and with humility and with love for those who might be hurting might be confused, might be so swept up in a worldly philosophy that they don't even realize that there's another way to think about abortion. But of course, if you're listening to this and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and abortion is something that you have been okay with, you have thought was a right thing, then my only desire is that you will better understand where that belief is coming from and realize that we just can't justify murder. No matter how emotional we may be about it, no matter how passionate people may be as they argue for abortion, whatever justification we come up with, at the end of the day, we want to love and serve our God and bring him glory. And murdering other human beings out of convenience, out of fear, out of pain or sorrow does not love God, it does not serve him, and it does not bring him glory. So wherever someone is on this argument, the important thing to remember is that a good argument can change someone's mind, but we need Jesus Christ to truly change our heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.